Well, it is Mother's Day, and I will just tell you up front that uh, several years ago, as I thought about moms and especially godly mothers, I realized that uh, probably those specific Mother's Day sermons weren't the things that God was calling me to do. And it's amazing how God does things. I had planned out this sermon series quite some time ago, and yet the section we're in in Romans 8 really fits Mother's Day. So I would invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, we're in the last eight, nine verses. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. One day when I was in my late teens, I came home and I found my mom there at the kind of the counter there at our kitchen sorting her silver. This was the silver she was given for her wedding day. Forks, knives, spoons, serving utensils. Sorting it and putting it back in its um, original little cases there. I discovered that uh, she was working not too successfully to hide her tears. You see, my mother had all her life suffered from what's called petite mal epilepsy. So the micro seizures that she would have, no one else could detect, but as family, we could see them. And in the early days, petite mal epilepsy was controlled by low dosage phenobarbital. That was until a four-year-old son, and I only have two sisters, so we're talking me, thought it was not fair that mom got to take candy from that little bottle that was up on top of the kitchen seal. And so I took my shoes off and I slid a chair over and I ingested maybe about half a bottle of her candy. I was dizzy for days. Uh, by the time they discovered what it had, I spilled some and the dog ate what I spilled and they thought the dog, that mom had spilled it. So next thing you know, they take me to the ER because I would tell my dad, Daddy, the womb is going wound and wound. It was too late to pump my stomach. They had to wake me up every two hours. And this all forced my mom to change medications. So she went from a low-dose phenobarbital, and it probably explains a lot about me today, but we won't go there. We, she went from a low-dose phenobarbital to a medication called Dilantin. One of the side effects of long-term use of Dilantin is that it begins to affect your teeth and your gums. And my mom now, years later, was needing major dental work. And we did not have dental insurance at the time. That wasn't something. And so the only way that she was going to be able to pay for her dental work was to sell her silver. Now, I don't think my mom was weeping because it was her silver. I think she was weeping because she was having to use it for her. You see, if she had to use it for me or one of my sisters, she would have sold it in a minute. But she was struggling that she was putting the family in this position. And that's the thing about true love. True love doesn't think twice about one sacrifice for another. It's Mother's Day. 
And yet in a broken and fallen world, there are some of us who only long for that kind of a word picture of love for our mothers. In fact, in a broken world on a Mother's Day, there are those who made a steadfast decision, a determination that if God ever allowed them to be mothers, they would be different. They would chart a new course than what they had experienced. And on the other hand, there are some of us who, hearing my story, think back and have known about those snippets of love, have now looked back as adults and realized what mom did to sacrifice for them. There are those who can say they are certain that their mom was for them and would do anything in her power for them. Love is such a powerful reality in our lives. As we come to the end of Romans 8, we discover that in one sense, in this what I would call pinnacle, this is the peak of the book of Romans, it's truly about God's love for us. It's clear from our text that Paul was intent on making sure that those people sitting in those various house churches of Rome, listening to Phoebe read the letter, that they would know beyond the shadow of a doubt that God loved them unconditionally. And as I spent time in this text, and as I thought about it, it dawned on me that the, the first thing that I think Paul wants us to know is simply this. We have confidence because God is for us. Look again at verse 31 of Romans chapter 8. We've just read it together. Paul in that dialogue question-answer approach says, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? What shall we say in response to these things? Paul, what things are you talking about? What things are we to respond to? And I think if we want to understand that question, we need to understand that Paul is talking about, in one sense, everything he's talked about from Romans 1 to this point. But maybe more specifically, he's talking about chapters 5 through 8. Because next week we're going to see a shift in the book of Romans when we start chapter 9. But in chapters 5 through 8 that we've been through the last few weeks, think about it. We find in chapter 5, verse 1, that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And in chapter 5, 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We go on and we find that, 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 that we are dead to sin through Christ and, and that we learn in chapter 6 and verse 23 that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The reality of our struggle with sin is, is built up in Romans chapter 7 as we go back and forth about the good we want to do and, and we struggle. And then Paul concludes that in chapter 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then he tells us that we've been adopted into Christ's family. And then he tells us again that God is constantly working through the Holy Spirit to remind us that we're children of God, joint heirs with God. And even when we struggle, there's purpose in it because God is taking all of the struggles in our life and he's conforming us to Jesus. And so Paul says, what do we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
And the ununderstood answer is absolutely no one. Oh, we may think sometimes people are against us. It feels that way, doesn't it? Sometimes it feels like those people who don't love God at all are winning. And the reality is, though, God is for us. And no matter what we face, no matter what we struggle, nothing can defeat us. No one can defeat us when God is on our side. Let that sink in a minute. God is on your side. God is for you. The almighty, infinite, eternal creator, sustaining God is for you. That should cause within us to have a deep inner confidence Not a confidence that, that's right, I'm going to make it on my own. Not that kind of a confidence. It's a confidence on not what I can do, but a confidence on what I can move through because the God of the universe is for me. Have you ever felt that vote of confidence from another person? Have you ever seen how amazing it is what you can achieve when you know someone else has confidence in you? I played basketball as a kid. Now, I was never allowed to try out for the middle school team or the high school team. My mother was anti-high school and middle school sports. I've dealt with that through therapy. It's Mother's Day. We'll leave that. So I ended up playing in a pretty competitive church league in our town. Our church didn't have a team. So I played for the United Methodists, namely because my best friend was on the team. And uh, after he moved away, they kept me. Now, when I was in eighth grade, I was this height, not this weight, but this height. And uh, so in eighth grade, I was what they call the man in the middle. I was the center for the team. I developed a, a sky hook after Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and, and, one, you know, and, I, and that was me. But then I go into ninth grade, and in ninth grade now, I am with guys that are bigger than me. And uh, the other thing, you know, so here I am almost, not quite, almost six foot tall. I could, gra- I could jump and grab a hold of the rim. I could jump pretty high. Because I was carrying hardly any weight. So, you know, in 1974, wearing the 1970s short, short basketball shorts, my maroon Chuck Taylors, Converse All-Stars, my long socks that came up to my knees, knee pads, and a red, white, and blue headband, I cut a mean figure. Oh, by the way, I've been wearing glasses since I was third in third grade. So safety glasses with the strap on the back. We're playing a game against another team that was pretty tough and they were razzing me the whole time. And in fact, and you've got to be a certain age, they started calling me Woodstock, not after Woodstock in New York, but after the Peanuts character that played, you know, and they just started making fun of me and calling me Woodstock. One of, my, one of my fellow players, his name was literally, we called him Boo. I don't know what his real name was, but Boo stood about this tall, big old guy, and he could see that I was rattled. 
He came over to me at a time out, put his arm around me and said, hey, listen, we know they're trying to razz you by calling you Woodstock, but me and the guys, we think that's a cool nickname. And we think you're doing great. So don't worry about it, Woodstock. Go out and get them. I think I scored 10 points that quarter, grabbed a few rebounds, and even stole the ball once. All of a sudden, I had confidence. Why? Because Boo Hodges was for me. Because the guys on the team were for me. They were on my side. That was a boost to confidence. But if a group of guys on a church league basketball team in Salina, Kansas, are for me, and that gave me confidence, then think about the confidence you and I can have because the God of the universe says, I am for you. If God is for us, who can be against us? Nobody. And Paul, though, doesn't stop there because you say, well, how do I know God's for me? How do I know? Show me some proof. Paul says, okay, you want proof? Here we go. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how, he, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Paul says, God held nothing back from us. He didn't even spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. All. So if God wouldn't spare his own son, but would let him die on the cross for your sins and mine, then what makes you think he won't give us everything we need to be successful for him? If God has provided everything necessary for us to have a faith relationship with him, why should I worry about my needs? Why should I fret? And it's not just our needs right now. We mentioned last week from Philippians, one day God promises we will shine like stars in the universe. We have hope for this life and the next because God is for us. As a pastor, roughly 35 years now, it was 1984, Five that I started, I first got paid to be a youth pastor. I've talked to people throughout the years who always wonder if they've done enough. You know, so, you know, and, and, it's, and it's, have I done enough to spend eternity with Jesus? Uh, and some of those people look back and they look at, you know, I've made such a mess of my life and... and, and uh, and I'm, I've, just, I've just made so many mistakes. And, and, and Satan is really good. Our enemy, he's called the accuser because he's really good at, at reminding us of those things, reminding us of our mistakes. And, and, and so, you know, maybe I've made too many mistakes that God just has done with me. That's not what the Bible teaches, but sometimes it's easy to believe that. And... They get into that whole idea, you know, I know when God weighs my good and my bad, my bad's going to outweigh the good. I know that. You know what? A God who's for us doesn't want us to live in fear and uncertainty. Listen to what Paul says in verse 33. And now he's starting to use courtroom language. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? 
It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Paul says, nobody, nobody can condemn you spiritually. Nobody can. Because we have been declared righteous when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. You, know, you look back at Romans 8.1, not being condemned by God. It's not a free pass to live how we want. But it's the freedom from the penalty of sin and guilt so that we can live for a God who's for us. God accepts us because of our faith in Jesus. When Satan steps up to accuse us in the heavenly courtroom, he loses every time. In fact, that's what Paul tells us. Who, will, who then is the one who condemns? No one. And then he goes on, Christ Jesus who died and more than that was raised to life is at the right hand of God. The right hand of God is a place of power. It's a place of authority. It's a place of honor. And he intercedes for us. Now, let me put it this way. It's like Jesus is our defense attorney. That's the point. That's what he pleads for us. He intercedes for us. To intercede for can mean to pray for. I believe that's part of it. But it also means to plead for. And when you stand in a, and when you're in a courtroom, that attorney is to be for you. And so when Satan comes up and he accuses Scott Howington, God, the judge, God, the father turns to Jesus, the defense attorney and says, do you have any exhibits to, do, for the, to present to the court? And Jesus stands up and he shows his hands and his feet and his side. And he says, I died for him. I paid his penalty already. Boom. Not guilty. Satan loses in God's courtroom every time because God is for you and Jesus is your defense attorney when you put your faith in him. We can have confidence because God is for us. I know some of us wrestle with that. Some of us have a very high and overactive sense of guilt in our own lives. Some of us were beat ourselves up over past failures. And I want to tell you yet again, God's forgiveness is complete. And while you and I may suffer the consequences of our actions, our forgiveness in Christ is complete. That reality was driven home for me many, many years ago. I had a friend in Indiana who had a ministry at Indiana State Prison in Michigan City. He got permission from the warden to invite a couple of us, myself and another guy, to come up and to take some pictures that he could use, some slides that he could use in a presentation to share the ministry he was having with the prisoners. One of the prisoners, we'll call him Richard, was on death row. And he came into the room where we were. His feet and his hands were shackled together. And he carried between his hands a Bible. And he shuffled in, as you do in the shackles, and he sat down, orange jumpsuit. And he sat at the table, and he and my friend began to have their conversation. And we tried 
you know, you talk about feeling like paparazzi. You know, they're having this conversation. We're going, you know, and there was one photo. I don't have any more, but it's etched in my mind. It was this man there sitting there in shackles, paying for his crime on earth, but his handcuffed hands were sitting, resting on the open Bible. He was forgiven by God, paying his debt to society, but forgiven and knew with confidence that when he passed from this life to the next, he would be in the arms of Jesus. He knew he was forgiven, and he knew God was for him, and he had a quiet confidence. And he was making a difference in the lives of others. Paul's not done. Verse 35 is a parallel question to what we see in verse 31. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And, and, and Paul asks that as a who, and of course we will say no one, but it's interesting what he follows that with. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he follows with a list of what's. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? No one. Well, what can, kind of understood is, well, it, can anything separate us from the love of Christ? And he says, shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And Paul knows whereof he speaks. I got to believe when Paul penned those words, he was, he was thinking about his own life experience. You see, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he tells us about his own life experience a bit. And in 2 Corinthians 11, um, pick it up in verse 24. Listen to these words. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. Verse 26 kind of relates to what we saw in Romans 8. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst. I have gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Paul knows what he speaks, and he goes, by the way, folks, this didn't separate me from the love of God. Chapter 12 is that famous chapter where he had this thorn in the flesh. We don't know what that was. And he said, I begged God three times to take it away. And the only response he got was, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Sometimes God doesn't remove the struggle, sometimes God gives us the grace to go through the struggle. And Paul says, that is why, verse 10, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What? Who can separate us from the love of Christ? What can separate us from the love of Christ? Absolutely nothing. Paul quotes from Psalm 42 or 44, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Psalm 44 is a psalm that talks about God's victory, God's strength. And in fact, in the section that's quoted, 
I pick it up in verse 20. If we had forgotten the name of God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God have discovered it since he knows the secrets of the heart? Yet for your sake, he's speaking to God. For your sake, God, we face death all day long. We are considered as sleep as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul says life is hard and it is rough and we struggle and We're overwhelmed. And as I think about all of that, and I think about this section, I realize we are energized because of the incomparable love of Jesus. That's what Paul's point is. And in fact, he'll say it, we'll, we'll, we'll dig into it in a minute. In these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us so. We are energized because of the incomparable love of Jesus. Don't hear me say that somehow we're stoic and emotionless in our struggles. That's not the point. I hope you're not stoic and emotionless. That's not real life. The point is we have the divine energy of the love of Jesus that helps us contend with the struggles of life. That's that confidence, that confidence that you and I have, and there's nothing we face that can erase the love of Jesus. Absolutely nothing. It's constant, it's real, it's powerful, it's energizing. And, and, and so Paul in this realist in Psalm 44, 22, when he quotes that, we just looked at it, he says, yes, we face hardships, we do. Yes, we face tragedies, we do. Yes, we have sorrows. Yes, we have see natural diseases. Yes, uh, dis natural disasters. Yes, there's disease. Yes, there's heartache. Yes, there's loss. It's life in a fallen world. Life is hard. And sometimes as Christ followers, we feel something like everybody gets a break but me. And if you ever feel that, and I won't go to it now, Psalm 78, written by Asaph. And he says, my foot almost slipped because I looked around and I saw the ungodly getting all the breaks. That's the Scott Howington free translation. I saw the ungodly getting all the breaks. They seem to have it together. They seem to have all the money, all the fame, all the fortune. And I almost slipped until I realized that's all they have. They don't have a God. They don't have relationship with Christ. They only have what's now. Paul says life's hard. But he says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us so. There is victory in the middle of the battle. And that word conquer is a very rare word uh, that he uses. It's, it's a word that means complete and total victory. It's a word that comes out of the battlefield. It's a word that does not, re a word that would refer to what we would call an unconditional surrender. See, an unconditional surrender is when the opposing force is so defeated that they just say, okay, we're done. A conditional surrender says, well, okay, you can have this, you can have that, you can have this, but we get this. No, an unconditional surrender says it's complete and total victory for the winning army. And Paul says, we are more than conquerors. 
We are the victorious forces in Christ and the defeat of the enemy is going to be complete and total. It's going to be unconditional. When it comes to the struggles in life, we can be victors not because of our grit and our determination. We can be victors through or by means of Him who loved us so. The love of God, the love of Jesus displayed on the cross is complete and total and energizing and powerful. And then Paul concludes with this very familiar statement. But it's, a very, it's an amazing statement when you break it down. He says, I am convinced. Literally, I have complete and total confidence. There is nothing that will shake this confidence. That neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. When you look at that list, it covers all of life. Neither death nor life. Those are the bookends of our physical existence. He reverses them, but we're born. We enter life. And someday, we will die. Our entire life. Nothing in my physical existence can separate me from the love of Jesus. Neither angels nor demons. That's the spiritual realm. There's, there's angels, there's angels that, that God uses, angels that, that minister to us, angels that are ministering spirits, but there are fallen angels, demons who accuse us and who torment us and who, who, who create havoc in our world. Throughout the spiritual realm, nothing in the spiritual realm can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. There's the present and the future. That's That's time. I would probably add past, present, and future. Nothing past, present, or future can separate us. There's nothing that happened, that is happening, or that will happen that can separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. The one that's not with a couplet is powers, nor any powers. And my understanding is twofold of that. I think it connects with the spiritual powers, but I think it connects with other things. Political power, social power, cultural power, familial power. There is no power on earth that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. No one who has any authority or sway over us can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And then he says, height nor depth. That's a difficult pair. It seems that maybe he's speaking of all that makes up the earth, whether it's the depths of the earth and the Mariano Trench, as deep as they've ever been able to go to the depth of the earth, or the height above space, beyond where the Hubble or Webb telescope could ever view. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then he just summarizes it nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Would you just think about that? There's nothing, nothing in all creation, nothing that has existed, does exist, or will exist, nothing. That's an all-encompassing statement 
Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And no one. Think about, we've been three weeks in Romans 8. Romans 8, 1 began with no condemnation. And now Romans 8, 39 ends with no separation. A scholar that I was reading pointed that out. I just love that. I'm not condemned because of Christ, and I can never be separated from his love because of the love of God through Jesus Christ. No condemnation, no separation. This morning, I think the simplest yet most powerful truth I could leave you with is simply this. God loves you. I'm going to pray in a minute. But before I do it, I want you to simply close your eyes and look inward. Look at you. Look at who you are. And I want you to hear this again. God loves you. In your heart, would you say that and say your name? For instance, I would say, God loves Scott Howington. Say that in your heart. Some of you may be objecting right now in your own thoughts. We do that. But I did. But I said. But I didn't do. But I can't. And I want you to imagine God as a gentle, loving, caring father holding you gently by the shoulders, looking you in the eye. And I want you to hear him again saying, I love you. I gave my only son to die on the cross for the sins of the world, and that includes you, because I love you. God loves you. Let that fact give you confidence in whatever is coming your way. God loves you. Allow that fact to give you the soul energy you don't even know you need today to strengthen you and give you hope for tomorrow. Oh, dear Lord, thank you for your love. Thank you for loving us. As you will say to your people in the book of Jeremiah, you love us with an everlasting love. Thank you for that love that can't be tarnished. Thank you for that love that nothing can overpower. Thank you for that love that nothing can separate us from you. Thank you for your love that reminds us you are for us, for your love that gives us confidence, for your love that energizes us. May we on this Mother's Day as we think about the love of our own mothers, bask in the reality of your love, which is even, as hard as it is to imagine, far greater. And remind us that we love because you first loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.